Welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Riley. And I'm Helen. And it's episode six today. Today we're covering a New Zealand case from a while ago. It's got a bit of ransom, it's got a bit of an international manhunt, and a lot of stuff you just won't believe. This case actually happened basically at the same time as the pumpkin case, which we covered in our very first episode. So there you go, full circle. But I guess also, when something like this happens in New Zealand, it's big news. Well, let's get into it. On the 14th of April, 2006, the morning of Good Friday, Andrew Willamot was sailing on his yacht in Waitemata Harbour in Auckland when he noticed a black object bobbing in the water. On closer inspection, he realised it was a large suitcase, and when it was too heavy to pull aboard, he opened the zipper a little. When he saw what was inside... Andrew immediately yelled for some nearby fishermen to call the police. So, what exactly was in the suitcase? Well, our friend here, Andrew, took a bit of a peep when he could and saw some fabric. So he first he thought it was a mannequin, which... I swear that pops up in every crime story. Who assumes that? Yeah. In a suitcase? If I see, like, any kind of, like, something in the water, I'm like, oh, bet there's a body in that. It's a body. I'm like, bet there's a body in that plastic bag. A few minutes later, he does realise it's a body and ties the suitcase to a rope to stop it from floating away. As we said before, it was too heavy to pull back up onto the boat. When police opened the suitcase back on shore... They discovered the partially decapitated body of a young Chinese man wrapped in hotel-branded towels and black garbage bags. Two compass saws and a 12-inch kitchen knife were also found in the suitcase. They suspected that it had been in the water for around 12 hours. Police used a distinctive mole on the body to identify it as that of Wan Bia, a 19-year-old English-language student from Yiwu, China. What mole would you use if you had to identify me, Helen? Probably your lip freckle. Oh, yeah. Do you think that would survive a uh, mm. crime case? It's been around for a few years. It's so stubborn. I don't think it's going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. You don't really have any big distinctive moles, do you? Mm, not really. You've got this one. Maybe these. Yeah, on these boys. Mm. They really stick out. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about me, hey? Yeah. This one. Probably that one on your lip. On top of my lip. On the Yeah. Wan lived in a flat in Auckland and studied at Oxford International Academy. His flatmates say that he was a very nice guy and would often chat with them about life plans and family back in China. He liked to socialise with other international students and was often out late playing pool. When Riz was doing the research for this case, a lot of their names just stayed in the pinyin form, where it's just the letters. We couldn't really find the characters while looking, so it. I'm going to try say their names but i actually don't know how what how the characters i mean the letters are meant to be pronounced because there was no uh no characters what do you call those lines that go above letters um like phonetic yeah yeah those are slants and lines the accents yeah there were none of those so one befriends jeng lee through his studies and is introduced to his three flatmates leander yin who went by max yushi wang wang who went by Ron, maybe that's why he chose Ron, yeah. and Xian Xing Chui, who went by Jim. So to sum it up, we have Lee, Max, Ron, and Jim. 
who live in an apartment together. The five of them with one played cards and went singing together at a karaoke bar. And they hung out from time to time, in a group of boys. Lee had talked previously to his flatmates about plans to kidnap one for ransom, the first time being six months earlier in November 2005, when he was speaking to Max. What a change in tune. Yeah. Just seconds ago they were... Hanging out. Going to karaoke. Now? Ransom. Max said he thought Lee was kidding, until he mentioned it again a few days later, and again in January 2006, where he presented Max with a plan to rent a place in Hamilton and carry out the kidnapping there. Lee had chosen one as the victim because he believed that his parents back in China were very wealthy. Hamilton is a bit south of Auckland. Not that far, though. You can drive there. You can drive anywhere in New Zealand. Yeah. Except to the other island. Is it a place where you would, like... Would you... (laughs) Would I? I probably wouldn't pick Hamilton if I uh, wanted to commit a crime. Okay. You kind of just pass through Hamilton. Maybe that's what makes Maybe it the that's, perfect place. Yeah. Just roasted Hamilton. Sorry about that. <laughs> in early April, Lee got Ron and Jim involved in the plan. Lee said that if Ron didn't help him, he'd just do it himself in their apartment. So Ron booked the hotel. Ron also obtained some rubber gloves and syringes in China and brought them back to New Zealand. Potentially, they were easier to obtain in China or maybe like so they couldn't be traced in New Zealand. In early April, Max came home to find Lee tying up Jim with tape to, quote, test whether a person could be tied up with tape. Um. Okay, Lee. Okay, Lee and Jim. Quick save. Yeah. Oh, just tying up. We're just practicing with this tape. Uh, just trying to see if it works. Yeah. <laughs> you good, Jim? <laughs> Jim's like, yep, I'm good, mate. <laughs> Why don't you have a shirt on? <laughs> oh, we're seeing the friction on the skin. <laughs> On the night of Thursday the 13th of April, one is last seen at home at 9pm. Sometime after this, Lee and Jim lured one to the hotel room that was arranged by Ron, where they drugged and bound him. They had hung out before, so this wasn't really that unusual. Like, there was nothing... He probably wasn't sussed that they were inviting him to hang out at the the hotel. Okay, here's the tea. They, like, lived in these hotels. Right. They didn't live in their apartment. But their apartment was, like, in a hotel. Oh. Yeah. Right. There were, like, apartment hotel things that they lived in. And Ron had lived in this apartment previously. That's why he chose it. But he was living in a different hotel. They were living in apartments within hotels. Yeah. And they booked another hotel to carry this out in. Yeah. Lee then called Wan's mother in China, who let her speak to Wan, who said, Mom, I've been kidnapped. Half an hour later, one spoke to her on the phone again. She says his voice sounded different. He was speaking in a heavy tone and she wasn't even sure if it was her son until he spoke in their local dialect. Another person came on the phone and told them to go to Hong Kong where they would be instructed on how to deposit 800,000 New Zealand dollars into an account. They said they would hurt one if she went to the police. Naturally, as soon as they got off the train, they went to the police and reported the kidnapping. Shortly after the second phone call, Lee and Jim strangled Wan to death. It's not fully clear if this was their intention when they kidnapped him, but it's fair to say that this was probably part of the plan all along, and Ron agrees with this. After all, he knew all of them and would have been able to report it if they had released him alive. After strangling Wan, Lee calls Ron, who was having dinner with Max at a nearby McDonald's, and asks them both to come to the apartment. Which is why, today... We went to McDonald's to get in the in the mood. We're going to say that was the reason, but I just needed some 
gravy loaded fries. Yeah. They didn't have the large size, so we had to get two smalls. Yeah, we were going to share a large. I didn't tell you, but I didn't want to share a large with you. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted... Am I that bad to share with? No, I just wanted all the chips I could get. It would have been dangerous. <laughs> when he said, sorry, there's no large, you were secretly like... I was like, the universe is looking out for yeah. me tonight. Tonight? To this afternoon, yeah. What do you think Ron and Max were having at, uh, <sighs> at Macca's? I reckon... Probably something basic. I reckon Max was like a all-day breakfast guy. I reckon he was having like some nighttime hotcakes or something. <laughs> You've been thinking about hotcakes for a long time now. Yeah, that's true. But I stand by You're it. projecting onto Max. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once they arrived at the hotel, Lee told them that one had been killed and told them he needed help getting rid of the body. They had already attempted to dismember and decapitate the body using a compass saw, which if you look at a pic of a compass saw... Did they really think that was going to work? How big is Tiny it? Tiny ass saw. <laughs> How big is it? Like, small. It's very, um... Show me with your... Like... Do like a... Well, it depends. The length, maybe like a foot or something. Like a foot long. Like sub. A sub. Like a subway. Right. The blade, maybe like... Oh, you know Eight what? inches. That's exactly how big I thought it would be. And, but not only... It's not shaped like a normal saw. Oh. It's like very narrow... The blade is like very sh- like shallow, like a bread knife. S- looks a lot like a bread knife. Yep. So they and it, and it comes it. to a point at the end. It would be so flimsy. Yeah. I don't know. But you know how saws are like, saws look like bread knives in the the edge. Yeah. So it's bread knife. Well, yeah. It's sharper than a bread An knife. An industrial maybe? bread knife. Okay. I, we need one of those for <laughs> our loaves. They also had a twelve-inch kitchen knife, but. With both of these things, they still weren't able to fully dismember the body. Lee told Max that they were going to need a bigger suitcase from their apartment, so Max went and got it and brought it back. Then they arranged one's body in the fetal position, wrapped him in towels and garbage bags, and put his body into the suitcase, along with the saws and the knife. They are seen leaving the Elliott Street Hotel at 3.30am with the suitcase, and they go in a taxi to Prince's Wharf in Waitemata Harbour, a spot which Lee had asked Max to check out as a potential dumping point. You know how when you like get in a taxi, the driver often gets out to like help you put your suitcase in? Can you imagine this driver was like goes to pick it up? He's like, huh, huh. yeah. He's like, damn, you you don't pack heavy, boys. Yeah, where you going? Yeah. But they were just going down to the wharf, which is really That's... close into the city. Like it's one street down to the water. Queen Street. You Probably can, could have just wheeled it. You can walk from Elliott Street to the water, although I'm bad with directions. And But if it's the water, yeah, they could have just walked. When they got there, Max, Jim and Lee walked to the end of Prince's Wharf, where they threw the suitcase into the harbour. This brings us back to where we started, the morning of Good Friday, where the suitcase was found bobbing in the water only around six hours later. The next day, on Saturday morning... Ron returned to the Elliott Street Hotel with a change of clothes for Jim and Lee and a can of air freshener. He just like rocked up with some Glen 20. He was like, yeah, yeah, this'll, this'll do the job. Glen 20 is not a brand and, oh, is it? I don't use, uh, haven't done much cleaning in my time in New Zealand, yeah. clearly. I don't think it's a brand in New Zealand. Could be I, wrong. I had this teacher in year 11, whenever there was like whiteboard, when she'd go to clean the whiteboard, she would just use Glen 20. And so she would just, like, douse the board in Glen 20 and she would, like, spray it all around the room on all the tables. If you went to school with me, you know exactly who I'm talking about. It used to gas the whole room out. 
So maybe, like, it is a pretty effective cleaning agent. Does it get rid of, like, marks, you know? Like, uh, forensic evidence. It's probably not that good. Yeah. But okay. maybe I'll have to... Maybe I should call up Mrs. Harris and ask her. She's clearly... <laughs> she she's, a, she's an advocate for Glen 20. She's a product stand. Maybe she'd used it before for some shady, shady stuff. She was like, this is the shit. After this, Jim literally runs to Australia. He gaps. He booked a flight to Sydney at the airport. Who does that? Who does that? You can... Maybe in 2006 you couldn't, like... You can do that shit on your phone. Yeah, that is manic energy. Yeah. Where he planned to open an Australian account for the ransom to be paid into. The first clue for the police was the hotel-branded towels, which immediately linked the murder to the Elliott Street Apartment Hotel in central Auckland. Using hotel CCTV and guest records, police identified the men who one had met at the hotel. And funnily enough, they hadn't even checked out yet. They were just hanging out there. They were still there. They were waiting for Ron to come back with some more Glen 20. Yeah. On the 19th of April, five days after Ron's body was discovered, police stormed room 408 of the Elliott Street Hotel and arrested Lee and Ron. The hotel room was forensically searched, revealing bloody handprints and smears in the hotel bathroom, despite their efforts to clean the scene with Glen 20. <laughs> Confirming that this was indeed a murder scene. Good job, boys. You had five days and did nothing. <laughs> Just whapped it. Yeah, wiped, wiped it, it down. Once, probably with like... some disinfectant towels. <laughs> you know, disposable ones yeah. that they threw in the bin. <laughs> At this point, Jim is long gone. He's not there when they Where arrest. do you New Zealanders get off? <laughs> Just running over here. After you've done something wrong, as if, like, we're not going to find you. That is not... <laughs> no Where's comment. that agreement? Where's that international agreement? Just come to Australia after you've, like, killed someone. All good. We'll have you. Okay, it's happened twice. Yeah, both... In our cases. <laughs> both New Zealand cases that we have that have a solved killer. Oh, where else are we going to run? I don't know. To... Oh, it's the nearest place. They should hide out on Stewart Island, the little island. Under New Zealand. If you're listening to this and you're planning on committing a crime... Stuart Island. I'm telling you, you're not welcome. Go to Stuart Island. <laughs> Peter Dutton will kick you out. <laughs> the The amount of fuck-ups in this, in this case didn't just extend to the hotel towels. There were so many mistakes made. It was just like they wanted to be found. It was ridiculous. It's hilarious, actually. They wrap him up in the towels. The calls they made to China were from Lee's mobile... And they requested money to Jim's bank account. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, on top of that, they tried to clean the place with air freshener. So, Not to mention, when they put the body in the harbour, maybe they just assumed, like, oh, there's a whole body in here and some towels and stuff. Like, it'll sink. But they didn't, like, try and weigh it down or anything. I don't know. It just stayed floating. I feel like they were just trying to dispose it, not make sure it would remained. Maybe. They were just trying to, like... Oh, you know, like they oh, dumped it, it and ran. Yeah, it wasn't us. Oh, who? Yeah, it wasn't like oh, let's make sure it hits the bottom of the, the ocean floor. That's true. But well, the only question I have is why did it take police five days to <laughs> go to Elliott Street Hotel? Maybe they really just wanted to be sure. They looked up the directory for all the hotels in Auckland. They didn't want them all to run to Australia, right? If they scared them. Shortly after Lee and Ron were arrested, Max comes forward to police and confesses his involvement in the murder in exchange for. Prosecutorial. Is that how you say it? Yeah, prosecutorial immunity. Prosecutorial immunity. Basically, he snitches and he's safe. Yep. 
Max literally spills everything. He describes Lee as the ringleader of the whole operation, identifies another man involved who was Jim, and gives us a picture of how all these people knew each other. From Max's statement, other witness accounts and CCTV footage, we're able to recreate a fairly accurate picture of one's death at this point. So now that the police know Jim was also involved, they're like, where is he? After a 10-week joint investigation between Australian and New Zealand authorities, Jim was tracked down in Sydney and extradited back to Auckland, where the summary hearings for the case began on the 4th of September 2006. Summary hearing is like where both parties like come to the judge and um, the Crown case will be like put forward and the judge will be like, yeah, you have enough evidence to go to trial. A hoedown throwdown. Yeah, if they don't have an, a good enough case, the judge will be like, don't bother, try yeah. again. Yeah. Jim and Lee face charges of murder and kidnapping, while Ron faced charges of kidnapping and being an accessory to murder. Max has already snitched, so he's free to go. He's faced with nothing Yeah. but telling the truth. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how that works, but we'll move on. Yeah, we're not going to go into it right oh, now. There's oh. no time. They all plead not guilty, forcing the trial to go ahead. This trial was like quite secretive, and there was a whole range of suppression orders made. Initially, we didn't even know any of the names of the accused parties. And there are still a lot of details, like what both parties argued, that we just don't know. Yeah, that's why we didn't have that much to say about any of these boys, really. There's not a lot on them. There's not a lot to know. I'm not sure if that was because there was some sort of, like, international involvement with, like, authorities back in China and Interpol. Potentially it just didn't garner enough public attention to have a lot of the details published. Jurors were shown gruesome pictures of the items that were contained in the suitcase, and the suitcase itself was apparently propped up against the witness box for part of the trial. One's parents were accompanied by a translator who had to whisper the brutal details of their son's death and the disposal of his body as the trial went on. That's awful. Yeah, imagine. And you can't, you can't censor it. You've just got to say it how it is. Yeah, that translator, oh, tough job. Such an uncomfortable job. The parents submitted a victim impact statement which was read out during the trial, which detailed just some of the effects it had had on their life. His mother was diagnosed with high blood pressure and stress brought on from her son's death and had been unable to sleep. His father was diagnosed with diabetes and high blood pressure as well, neither of which ran in the family. They were no longer able to care for one's 85-year-old grandfather due to their illnesses, and he had to be placed into a home. And that's like a big thing in Chinese culture is to look after their grandparents, mm. so it's not good. They said all the work they had put into their son's future was now meaningless. Ron offered to pay the parents 25 grand in amends, which, big whoop, Ron. Yeah. Thanks for that. He recognised that it was a long way short of the economic impact of their son's death. Their, their only, only son. son. Did he have any siblings? No. So their only child's yeah. death. But he said Ron's parents would probably understand the Chinese cultural context of it, and he thought that they would accept the money. The jury found Lee and Jim guilty of kidnap and murder and they were both sentenced to a minimum of 18 and a half years without parole. Ron was found guilty of kidnapping and sentenced to three years and nine months for his role in the murder. Justice Priestley said that he agreed Ron's offer of the money was not an attempt at buying a reduced sentence, and he recognised the cultural element of that action. He said that there was no need to pursue the issue of reparation by Lee and Jim, saying that it would be futile. 
Jim's legal costs had exhausted his family's resources, and Lee's family had just disowned him. Ultimate dishonour on your family. Mm. I want to know if if they extradited, not extradited, they uh, got rid of Max, like where they were like, go back, don't, don't stay here. Even mm. though he had confessed, did he get to stay? I'm not sure. He probably would have been allowed to stay. He hadn't been convicted of anything. <laughs> True. That's a bit... We're not going to go down that road. <laughs> I still find that strange. Maybe he chose to leave. So... If you've listened to our first episode, you'd know that we've now covered two Chinese New Zealand crimes on here. So you might be thinking, is there something going on here? Even if you're not, let's talk about it. To begin with, some people already didn't believe that this was just an amateur kidnapping. They were pretty quick to jump on other theories. I don't know how, though. Pretty obvious that this was just a shit kidnapping. <laughs> yeah, look very, at the facts. Very amateur. But this was probably before, yeah, this was before one's identity was even published, and I guess before a lot of the facts had come out. Mm-hmm. Journalist Jane Fair had already chalked up his murder as a gang hit. In an article in the New Zealand Herald, she wrote, Suddenly, a scene from Hong Kong, mainland China, or Sicily, is deposited on our doorstep. Added to the shooting of a triad gang enforcer near his karaoke bar in Auckland last year, and it's all a little too close for comfort and it's unlikely to go away. I'm just reading this in this tone because I imagine that's how she wrote it. Yeah. New Zealand is seen as a soft target. The demand for methamphetamine is high, and the profits, huge. If the offenders are caught, the penalties are seen as light, compared with the death penalty in some other countries. Standover tactics and a natural fear in the Chinese community means that many crimes may go unreported. Mention the word triad in the wider Chinese community, and the fear is evident. One man from the Chinese media said that the drama of the killing suggested mafia-style execution. I love how she just threw in Sicily so that she was like, (laughs) I'm not racist. I'm just talking about gangs. Mafia. Have you ever heard of the mafia in Sicily? (laughs) The article then goes on to talk more generally about Asian organized crime in Auckland, including illicit drugs, fraud, and a multi-million dollar seafood black market. (laughs) Look, I'm sure... Stuff goes on in the community, as does in all communities in the world. Yep. But this article really was a summary for how this stuff was going to be approached by the media. Yeah, just the the attitudes more generally of the media towards this kind of crime. Very sensationalist. Yeah. A little bit ridiculous. The seafood black market, that's going to be a bit <laughs> sensational, doesn't it? Yeah, not the seafood. Yeah. You just, like, someone turns up, they're like, I've got the gear. I've got the gear. It's just a bag of oysters. (laughs) Huge lobsters. (laughs) Massive lobsters. On the black market? Lobsters. (laughs) Yeah. After one was publicly identified as the victim of this crime, Chinese language forum Sky Kiwi was inundated with posts speculating about his death. And these included theories linking the killing to triads. A triad is basically like just like an organised crime syndicate mainly in mainland China and Hong Kong. If any triads are listening, please don't come for me. These are just the facts. This triad theory was probably sparked by the article that was written in the Herald. And like the old Chinese proverb, a tiger only becomes real the third time you say it, these posts on the forum fueled the fire that one had become part of the triad branch in New Zealand. One's flatmate says that he was distressed that news agencies were speculating that one had gang connections, saying, and I quote, I don't want people to think all Chinese people are killers, murderers. Sometimes it's very hard for us. 
We didn't do anything, but people think we do something bad. The speed at which the media was willing to defame one in this scenario speaks volumes for how Chinese crime is viewed in New Zealand. And I thought this warranted a little bit of a deeper look. I know that this isn't a criminology podcast, but I've got to use this degree somehow. You're very adamant on that. I need to use it. The media tends to portray the victims and perpetrators as like, of these like Asian crimes, as like external to the New Zealand community, like foreigners on the sidelines, you know? As a result of this, we saw and potentially continue to see this theory or conspiracy of Asian crime when really it's just regular New Zealand crime. Almost all Asian crime is targeted at Asian victims, but in the media they aren't treated like normal victims, and the media doesn't tend to feel sorry for them. We learn, we learn about this thing in criminology called the ideal victim, and it's like very easy for the media to like feel really sorry for them, and it's often mm. like like white, wealthy woman, normal job normal family like that's like your ideal person and a lot of the time like if you don't fit into that it's just like oh well you're like not like you must have been up to something I don't feel bad for you because you're not someone that I can feel sorry for it's already like uh, it's already easy I guess to feel a disconnect with people that are different from you and you'd hope the media would take the responsibility to humanize some people yeah but they don't really do that they don't Asian international students are often linked with deviance, violence, and corruption, and crimes are often linked with raising illicit funds for Asian perpetrators. Sometimes, even if the victim is completely innocent, there's this idea that they must have been up to something. Which, in all evidence and fact, one was not. He wasn't up to anything. He was just studying in New Zealand as an international student, normal, trying to to make friends. It's just a... Yeah. Thought he'd made some good friends. Then they were just like... We're going to kidnap you. Talking about ransom and stuff. Really unfortunate. What the media does really ignores a lot of the social context in which these cases take place. For example, in this case, all of the offenders were from backgrounds that would be considered privileged in China. They had all come to New Zealand to study, but they'd become isolated from their families, and with little social support or parental supervision, they fell into a lifestyle of sloth, where their days were spent playing computer games and watching DVDs. This doesn't explain away what they did, but it does help us to understand the broader context. Similarly, the language used by the media in relation to Wan was so dehumanising. They barely used his name, and they just often referred to it as, um, like, the suitcase murder or the suitcase victim. They used language like folded and stuffed when they were talking about his body. They sort of kept saying that the suitcase was tossed into the harbour. If it was a more ideal victim we all know that they would have been much more sensitive in the language that they used so our whole rant is to say there is no like there's nothing more going on about like why there are asian uh, crimes in the asian community in new zealand it's yeah. not a thing it's not a thing not a um, it's the same as there being crimes anywhere in the world in the wider community yeah and potentially there is like some merit in saying that there is organized crime but yeah there's organized crime everywhere God damn. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Especially in especially, Sicily. Apparently, especially According in Sicily. According to Jane. Jane, what's her name? Fair. Fare. Fare. Yeah. I don't know. Her. Her. <laughs> Come on, Jane. My mum works as an agent for, like, universities in recruiting, helping, uh, you know, place international students in courses and studies and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It is hard for them. 
coming to a different country yeah. to study. I mean, you did that too. Ah, uh, yeah, but it was easier for me because I was already I grew up in New Zealand. That's true. Know? A bit and less of a culture shock. No, yeah, I mean, it's shocking here. <laughs> oh. I'm culturally shocked every Shove day. Shove your by Tim you. Tams up your ass. <laughs> no more Tim Tams for you. Are they Australian? Yeah, Tim Tams. Yes. Oh, sure. Oh, oh. oh. we're gonna get into the Pavlova debate too. <laughs> Uh, but for them, they literally, they probably learn English in China, probably not that much or that well. And they've come to New Zealand to try study. It, it's very different culturally. It would be hard. And that whole thing about how they fall into this kind of isolation with little social support or parental supervision. It's real. It does happen. Yeah. Yeah. It, do- it doesn't excuse what they did, but I feel like it just offers like an insight into... They had. They didn't come to New Zealand to like get into trouble and to like, yeah, and to orchestrate more organized crime. They didn't do that. They mm. came to New Zealand. Things weren't going the right way. They wanted to get out of it somehow. They How didn't, they didn't have the support to not to go a different path. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we've at gone, this point, we've gone on about that. We are really just like <laughs> we're dispelling this theory. Yeah, we've dispelled it. We have. Thank you for listening to our Thank TED you. Talk. <laughs> Thank you for coming to this very extended TED Talk. Yeah. <laughs> that pretty much sums up all we have for today's case. Yep. My mom said, when I called her asking about this case, she said that at the time, she didn't know these boys. I mean, could have been probable that she because she worked with so many international students. But she did have another a client who was from the same area as the victim here, as one. And... When the news first broke and they hadn't released his name, his parents, her client's parents, couldn't get a hold of him. Like, they were calling from China. They were, like, scared that it was their son. They were calling from China and they were freaking out. And then they called my mom, being like, oh, my God, we saw the news. And eventually they got to get a hold of him. But, damn, that would be scary. Yeah. If you were his parents, not Mm. knowing knowing if he was your son. So, there you go. Another... (laughs) Another anecdote to prove that New Zealand is way too small for comfort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows something. Everyone knows each other. Everyone's yeah. like a, small, a big small town. Yeah, it is. But for now, yeah, New Zealand. New Zealand. <laughs> I got to do it every time, even though it's basically 50-50. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's still every time. I'm like, She's yeah. A New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, She's Grant. a ride or die. <laughs> Make sure to join us next week. Yeah. Thanks for listening. See you then. Bye.